0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the America's Pastime Podcast, Season 1, Episode 112. Jeremy here with Travis. Mike will be joining us a little bit later. And we are currently in this lockout state, but some things are still happening around baseball that are not MLB play-related. One of those things that we got some news about is Saya Suzuki. Now, he can't sign with an MLB team as of this current moment. But we got some news regarding teams that could be interested in him. Suzuki is the top free agent outfielder from Japan. He's 27 years old, can play all three outfield positions, probably one of, if not the best player in Japan last season and for a few seasons now, and he's looking to come to the big leagues and cash out on a big five- or six-year contract at at least $10 million per season. Three of the teams that are interested in Suzuki are the Toronto Blue Jays, the Boston Red Sox, and the New York Yankees. Now, these aren't the only three teams. These are just what are being said as the top three contenders, and especially the Yankees are seen as conceivably the top contender for Suzuki services. So, Travis, what do you think of these three teams and how Suzuki could fit for any of them? Well, it's
1: funny because if you had asked me – not even like five seasons ago, maybe two, three seasons ago, I would be shocked um, that Toronto would be on that list because I didn't think, I wouldn't have thought that they were the kind of team that would go out and drop 10 million on an outfielder like that. Um, But after seeing, you know, what they've done um, this offseason, bringing in Gosman and extending Barrios, um, you know, uh, among all other moves, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they dropped 10 million on... um, you know, a guy like Suzuki, especially like, I mean, cause that could turn out to be a steal from, you know, what everybody's been saying and what we've talked about um, on previous podcasts. But I think for the Yankees, the Yankees, depending on how bad they want him could even pay him more than 10 million. Um, it's just a matter of, in my opinion, it's a matter of, does he want to play in New York? Because I know um, Shohei Otani um you know, I, I think the Yankees were at one point a front runner for him, but he ruled them out. And just because not everybody can deal with, you know, playing in New York, right? There's the media is different. There's a lot more attention. There's a lot of pressure outside of performing on the field, right? There's also the public image perspective, you know, to it and everything like that. Um, but I just find it funny that it's the three or the two big spending AL East teams and the three front runners are all AL East teams. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, but, and then the Red Sox, I mean, they're always a, you know, they, they fall into the Yankees shadow a little bit when it comes to spending because the Yankees are always around the luxury tax threshold. But I mean, especially with losing Renfro, the Red Sox kind of have, I would say they have a hole in the outfield now, because I mean, I wouldn't want JBJ being my everyday center fielder or right fielder if he can't play center field anymore, right? So,
0: yeah, the Red Sox with that hole now losing Renfro, JBJ cannot be an everyday player. So, there is an opening there. And from what we've heard from Suzuki, he is a really good outfielder. His capability to play center field is a bit questionable. Of course, the Red Sox still have Duran and Verdugo can play out there. They really need him to, so they have some options out there. Kike Hernandez, of course, can play out there as well. So for the Red Sox, he would probably be more of a corner guy. Again, I don't know too much about his actual range, but just from what uh, I've read and from from what I can tell, he again is more of a corner outfield prototype. And the Blue Jays are interesting because they just lost their best player in Marcus Simeon and they're trying to replace that production they're not just going to sit on the sidelines and let and let Espino Espino and Kevin Biggio take over the spots that are empty in their infield second uh, third base and second base respectively they're going to go out there and try to improve this team in some way now adding an outfielder does crowd things up a little bit because they of course have Springer they have Lourdes Gurriel they have Teoscar Hernandez to have Randall Gritchick. So you would assume that they're looking to make a move there before the lockout happened. They were actually talking with the brewers about a Randall Gritchick type trade where they would take on Jackie Bradley jr's contract. They couldn't come to an agreement there. The Red Sox stepped in and essentially bought prospects to take on Jackie Bradley's contract. So it'll be interesting to see what the blue Jays do to make space. If they do sign Suzuki and clearly Suzuki presents such a a unique value opportunity because of the fact that he is just 27. So you would be able to sign him for five or six seasons right in the middle of his prime when he could conceivably get better. And there might be an adjustment period as there usually is for Japanese players, Asian players coming into the big leagues. But by the time he hits his true prime age 28, 29, 30 seasons, then you would get the best production out of Suzuki for a very affordable price at 10 million ish plus whatever the posting fee would be
1: yeah i think so um i I think you're right probably between 10 to 15 million depending on how you know large the bidding war gets for them um but it's funny that you mentioned uh the blue jays depth in the outfield and they definitely have a ton of depth now they have two they have two options so guriel jr was at one point An infielder. I remember going to a Jays game, and he actually played shortstop for them. Now there were issues with his with his fielding, and that's why they moved him to a left fielder. But I I don't know. Maybe they'd be open with trying him out at second. Um, I don't know if you'd want him playing third, but if you have a you know opening at second now with Simeon leaving, might be you know worth a shot to try him out at second. Or if they're not open to that, I think them signing Suzuki means that one of Guriel Jr. Biggio probably not Espinal because he doesn't hold a lot of value, but one of either uh, Gurriel Jr. or Biggio is going to be traded most likely with uh, Alejandro Kirk and probably some prospects for a pitcher of some sort or an infielder or something like that. um, Because I don't think they're going to want to carry four or five outfielders on their roster, right? Like last year they had, I think they had four and that was enough I mean, it was three for most of the season because Springer was hurt. But at the same time, I mean, you, you get what I mean? Like, I, I think if, if they sign him, if they sign Suzuki, they're, pro- they're pretty much just locking or cornering themselves into trading one of their outfielders away. And I mean, you can get decent value for Gurriel Jr. I know both Gurriel Jr. and Biggio didn't really come off good seasons, but, and I mean, there's also Grichuk too. He's, he, he had a pretty good season last year, so he might hold some value. And I know Jays fans don't like him too much because of how streaky he is, right? So, yeah.
0: I feel like Kevin Biggio would be a really hard guy to trade right now. He reminds me a little bit of Jeff McNeil's situation on the mm-hmm. Mets in that he's coming off a pretty bad season, but you know how good he could possibly be. He is so versatile, second base, third base, outfield, at worst, he is a high-quality, versatile utility player. And those don't just grow on trees. You probably aren't getting rid of him. If you're going to trade some surplus, it's probably going to be Lourdes Gurriel or Randall Grichuk, And Grichuk, of course, is the most expendable. He's making a little bit of money. You're not going to really get much for him in return. But you will be able to clear a spot. He did a nice job last season holding down Yafield when Springer was frequently hurt and he was valuable in that sense, but he is a very streaky guy. His on base percentage skills are not there. He has some power, but he is, again, he, he is certainly a guy that you can get rid of with no issue and have no issue replacing that production. So it'll be interesting to see what the blue Jays do. They're certainly not done. They can also bring in some veteran to come play third base, whether it's Kyle Seager jonathan vr who's played on the blue jays before i think that's also a route they may take in addition to bringing in possibly suzuki or some other outfield bat so the blue jays will be active they're going for it now going back to the yankees for a second they have a bit of a crowded outfield situation as well and i saw that they were also in talks at one point to possibly trade joey gallo to free up some space i don't know how valid that was. I don't know if they would actually do that because I don't think they would get the value in return where they hold Joe Gallo, what they traded for him, which was rather substantial in my opinion. So I think that Suzuki to the Yankees is possible, but it would again create a very crowded situation, especially considering that they still have Aaron Hicks on the books. He's coming back. Who knows what the situation with Brett Gardner will be. And they have Giancarlo Stanton who can now play the outfield. Do they really want to wedge him back into the designated hitter role? As we're speaking about the Yankees and their reported interest in Saya Suzuki, Mike, what do you think about the Yankees possibly bringing him in and can they fit him on their current roster?
2: Um, yeah, they still can. I, I heard you say Stanton as a DH. That would probably force him to move to that role or that would force them to use Judge in that role. That would force them to use Stanton in that role. I mean, uh, Gallo in that role. <clears throat> That's kind of up to, uh, up to them. I think Suzuki is like a probably a better defender than Stanton at this point, And it would be easier to preserve him. Um, I think the Yankees should get... Suzuki, but if they do, he just cannot be their biggest free agent signing of the offseason.
0: I feel like Suzuki would take up that Brett Gardner type role where he would get 300 to 400 at-bats at least to start based on their current roster construction and how crowded they really are. And then going into a further season, because it probably will be a five or six-year deal as we were just talking about, then he would take on a more prominent role presumably with more MLB experience and him able to adjust to MLB pitching. It would work out in a sense, but you're right for the Yankees. They can't just add Suzuki. They need to add a shortstop. They need to do a lot more. So they will be one of the more active teams, if not the most active team post lockout, whenever that does happen. Now, something that is happening right now, because MLB players can't negotiate, They They essentially aren't employees of MLB teams right now, but managers, coaching staffs can be adjusted. They can be signed. And so the two teams with managerial vacancies right now, the Athletics and the Mets are hot on their managerial searches. And it makes sense because before the lockout happened, they could just focus on player movement because they knew that this come December 2nd, Their entire focus can now, for the most part, shift to minor league players and to filling their managerial vacancy. And nowadays, having a manager in place clearly doesn't impact whether a player will sign with a team. I saw that that was something for the Mets that people were saying, oh, they wouldn't be able to sign anyone because they don't have a manager in place. Clearly, that's not the truth. But anyways, the Athletics and the Mets are currently in... They're currently searching for a manager. They have a lot of the same candidates So right now for the A's, they have Darren Bush, Matt Quatraro, Joe Espada, Will Venable, and Marcus Jensen. Travis, do you like any of these guys? Do you even know about any of these guys? What do you think about some of these candidates for the A's in particular and their situation Uh, going forward?
1: I'm going to be honest. I I don't know any of those guys. Um, I think a lot of them were kind of before my time when I really started following baseball seriously. I know – if we skip ahead to the Mets, I know Buck Showalter. He was with the Orioles, I believe, for quite a few years. Um, I but when it comes to the A's, I I've I've never heard any of those names. The first time I heard a lot of them was when they started popping up on my Twitter feed. So um, I though good on uh, good on the Mets for um, going out there and signing a bunch of free agents, kind of before the before the lockout. Because um, I mean, now they can use this what's probably going to be two three month break to lock down a, a manager i can say that i didn't say that much about this whole uh this whole situation but unfortunately i haven't heard uh too much about any of these manager candidates
2: yeah i'm i'm honestly much in the same boat i know that darren bush jensen and costa is another guy are all with the aids organization so that will be internal. And I'll be and I'll will Venable. I remember him with the Padres in the two thousands, late two thousands. That's that's the only major league player I remember actually having career.
0: Yeah, and then <clears throat> Joe Espada is the bench coach for the Astros right now, and he's been a managerial candidate for a lot of teams recently, and he just hasn't gotten the job for whatever reason. And then Matt Quatraro is the bench coach for the raise since 2018 and he's another guy who's been a finalist for all these managerial openings hasn't quite gotten the job but for the a's and then the mets as you mentioned travis both of them have espada and Quatraro on their lists for for manager so it'd be safe to assume that at least one of those guys is going to have a pretty good shot at getting one of these jobs and they're coming from really analytically based organizations, good fits for both organizations. But in the case of the A's, it's going to be a bit of a down period and they're going to have to be okay with managing a team. That's not going to be good for a couple of years.
1: It's funny that you mentioned the analytically driven thing, because I was trying to find a a spot to bring that up, but if you look at the A's, I mean, they're Moneyball, right? I mean, that's literally, they founded the whole analytical shift in baseball, right? Um, and it's funny that, you know, the Rays and the Astros bench coaches are interviewing for a job with the A's because it seems like a perfect fit, right? Because those are two very analytically driven. I mean, the A or the Rays a little bit more than the Astros, but nevertheless, the Astros are very analytically, analytically driven team as well. So I think good on the A's for kind of going and getting guys who are, or, you know, interviewing guys who are familiar with the environment. Right. And I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but at the same time, I'm sure it's not exactly, you know, obvious to everybody that, you know, you kind of want to interview guys who uh, are kind of in the same environment as, you know, your team or whatever. Right. So it just makes a transition period a little bit less, but you're definitely right about the, other transition period in terms of, you know, the A's are going to suck for a couple of years before they can develop some new talent uh, just because of the way they run their team. Right. So that's definitely a factor.
2: And uh, I think the last thing too, is uh, I guess the athletics and Mets are in a good spot where the lockout helps them too. I don't think you mentioned that, just the fact that they can make these moves and they don't have to focus on making any like moves at that major league level in terms of adding rosters. I mean, adding players to the roster. Not that the Athletics are really going to do that. It's more so for the Mets. They're still probably going to be adding pieces, even after all the additions they made. But I think that it's for – if there's going to be any time to be a lockout, I guess it helps the Athletics and the Mets just to focus on that.
0: Yeah, and then also for the Mets, I feel like when you take a look at the state of their team, they're in a win-now mode versus, again, the A's not so much, and their candidates are reflective of that. You have guys – a couple of guys amongst their managerial candidates who wouldn't take the A's job, wouldn't want it because they're looking for an opportunity to win most likely. And some of those guys, Brad Osmus, who was a manager under Billy Epler with the angels. So he, there was definitely a good connection there and definitely a good relationship. And he was fired from the angels job, not because of Billy Epler, but rather because Artie Marino was a big Joe Madden guy, wanted to bring Madden in, wanted to have this high-powered manager. He thought that would make a difference. Clearly it hasn't. So Osmus is still a viable candidate to be a big league manager. Espada, Bob Garen, who was the bench, he's been the bench coach of the Dodgers. He was the bench coach of the Mets at one point, so the relationships are still there. Don Kelly, former Tigers and Rangers player, you guys have probably heard of him. He was part of those Rangers teams that went to the World Series. MacIntyre, who we already talked about, and then probably the sexiest candidate of them all that Travis mentioned already, Buck Showalter. He would not take the A's job. He wants to come to a job where he has an opportunity to win. Win now. He is a he's a he's a a, a big a big fish to catch for the Mets if they can wrangle him in and get him to be their manager because he's been a part of such winning teams, winning organizations. What do you guys think of Showalter possibly as Mets manager?
1: I'm not exactly sure where he was before he was with Baltimore, but I know he was with Baltimore when they were a good team, uh, kind of early 2010s or early to mid 2010s when they had, uh, I think they had a couple 90 win seasons or something during the Machado era. Um, made the wild card game a few times and i don't think they won the al east i think they were more just a wild card team but they made the postseason a few times so you know he knows how to manage a winning team um so he, he would definitely be a good fit for the mets um like i said before he's the only candidate for the mets that i that i actually know a little bit about um but yeah like you said he knows how to manage a winning team um he's been in that environment before and that's what he's looking to you know, be entered into and he gets to, you know, manage on a big stage, right? New York, big market. Uh, I think it's kind of what he wants, right? Not yeah, to I mention mean, his last name, but anyways. It's
2: not, his, it's not his first time in New York though. He actually started with the Yankees in the 90s. Oh,
1: okay.
2: Yeah. He did the 90s with the Yankees and then he was with the Diamondbacks, then the Rangers and then the Orioles. So he's been around for a while. 92, he started with the Yankees. Um, for the Mets, uh, I, th- I think it, it, he would fit fine. I, I don't think uh, in any means he's, like, a, you, know, you know, he's, like, what, 64 years old now. He's not, like, old by any means for a manager. He's still uh, – he's I think he's more of an old-school manager, but I, I don't think the analysts would really bother him. And if the people of the Mets organization like him, and I know he's well-respected throughout the game, so I think the signing for them would, would be fine. I, I don't know what's, how big of an impact it would have, but I don't think it would be a negative one
0: and we've seen this revolution of sorts over recent seasons where for a while it was, okay, let's bring in for probably the mid 2010s, I would say let's bring in these young managers, these guys who are even younger than some of the players themselves on the field. And let's bring those analytically based guys in to come in and be able to connect better with the players. And then over the last couple of years, Tony La Russa, Dusty Baker, uh, a couple of other guys, older guys have come in and, been, uh, I guess, Brian Snitker as well, been managers of, of winning teams and shown that this movement towards younger managers doesn't really mean too much and that as long as the guy is good at the job, as long as he's receptive to analytically-based thinking, and as long as he can connect on some level with the players, even Tony La Russa did, then, again, as you said, Mike, it doesn't really matter that much who manager is, the manager is nowadays. So show Walter, just like any of these guys really are probably good candidates for the Mets.
1: Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're 75 or if you're 25, like if you fit the system and you know how to manage your team, you're, you're the team's going to win. Right. I mean, I guess there's a certain level of respect that comes with, you know, being older, but at the same time, if your team's winning games, if you're, you know, 20 years old guys on the team are going to respect you no matter what. Now, do I think we'll see a 20 year old manager? No, but you know, you know. Yeah, I
2: don't know. It's he's like a very like safe bet in my opinion. Like you, you you know, you're going to get with him, and he's for the most part going to like this control everything. Not going to you know, that that can be like a whole like scene going with the Mets. I think that could be a good option for that. You know, the Mets always find a way to get themselves in some type of like stupid PR trouble, and I think that Joe Walter will do a good job of like you know squashing anything from happening.
1: Well, that's that's the other thing. Um, before you hopped on, we were talking about uh, Suzuki in the New York market, right? Like just uh, the, you know, the media attention that you get for for playing in New York and because Walters already managed for the Yankees. Right. He knows how to kind of manage in this New York environment again. With yeah, the, it was
2: different to a degree. I mean, it, it, was, it was
1: different back then. But I think it's still it, it's obviously changed. But I think the core principles of like, you know, lots of media attention in New York are still there.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: We'll see what happens. That'll definitely come to a resolution in both cases for the A's and the Mets before the holidays, before Christmas and such. So something to keep an eye on, something to talk about over the next couple of weeks. Now, on MLB's website, I think we we touched on this on our last baseball episode, they blacked out all the players' uh, pictures and they removed any reference to current players' MLB players on their website pretty much whatsoever. And instead they have whatever news, whatever small pieces of news, like the managerial searches out there talking about the winter meetings coming up, which are still going to be held, but they're only going to be in the good old days movements and trades can still happen, but they can't really, they can't be announced if they include major league players. So What they did put out is this FAQ on the CBA negotiations and what we're going to do is just look through the questions they ask and instead of going with their answers, which are definitely biased and in a lot of cases, not even correct, we're going to answer them ourselves. So the first question, why did MLB lock out the players? Travis, what is your answer to this question?
1: You know, we were talking about this before the podcast, and I'm not exactly – I know you're probably you, – you have some thoughts, but I'm not exactly completely against the um, the answer they gave. So they said uh, it's the best mechanism to protect the 2022 season. I don't exactly agree with that. I don't think it was the best. They definitely could have negotiated this if they had started the negotiations, you know, more than two weeks before the, the lockout. But, I mean – bad management, but I guess the lockout was, uh, it, it was a last resort and they are correct in saying that it will, uh, it, it, it doesn't jumpstart the, the, the negotiations, but at some point it will foster, you know, some form of negotiation that will bring the 2020 season back. Um, I mean, why did the MLB lock out the players? They just couldn't come to an agreement. That's that's really all it, all it was. Um, the players wanted more money, and the MLB owners didn't want to give it to them. And I know also the players are a little bit upset with Manfred, which we've also talked about quite a bit on this podcast. Um, just some of the changes he's made to the game, uh, I don't think the players are too happy about. Um, so... That, that's kind of my short answer to it. Just they couldn't come to an agreement. The players want more money. Owners don't want to pay it to them. So
2: I, I don't yeah. know about you, Jeremy, but Now, what do you think, Jeremy?
0: Uh, so I think Travis, yeah, I think I think he gave a pretty nuanced take to it. <clears throat> um, basically, the players, have don't have the rights that they should have salary wise service time wise um, service time manipulation we're talking about uh, when they hit free agency that those are the most important things additionally things like the postseason and how many postseason teams make it the dh the owners hold the dh as they they use it as a bargaining chip rather than Because everyone knows baseball should have a designated hitter, but instead the owners see it as an opportunity, and it's it's for their own benefit rather than they're looking at how it benefits the game overall. And that's really the case in general with these owners. Their concern is lining their pockets. Meanwhile, for the players, because of the fact that their salaries and their success is predicated on the popularity of the game and the success and growth of the game, unlike the owners who may have other streams of revenue who can survive if the game takes a dip because because of these TV contracts and such. This is not the case for the players. So in a sense, the players and the fans are pretty much on the same side, but the owners are against them. And that's why MLB locked out the players because the players and the owners just cannot come to an agreement because they are on very different planets of what they want baseball to look like and what they want for themselves going forward.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I put the most blame on the owners. I think they're a bunch of greedy bastards who just want more and more money than they already have. I mean, I saw like a tweet that says like the average like net worth of these owners or whatever is like two point five billion or something like that. Or I forgot what it was, but they're making like stupid amount of money and they already have so much money as well. They just want more and more. And I mean, I just don't understand like why they can't like allow players, you know, get free agency, younger. Like not like I feel like spending more money is good for the game. The spending money is like to make money, you know, it's, like that's the old mantra. I think that the owners. Yeah, I mean, the only downside of that too is that if you want to spend more money, that's probably that's like the upcharge you like give you more, spend more money on like tickets and everything as well. So, I mean, I don't know. No matter which way they do it, they're going to be making money. Well,
0: the, oh, sorry, the, go ahead, Jarvis.
1: The way I see it is every single owner should be like Mark Cuban. I know Mark Cuban is basketball, but his principles for owning a team apply. Um, owning a sport, professional sports team should not be a business it should be like a fun way to spend your money and now i'm not saying that the owner shouldn't care but i'm also saying that the owner shouldn't be dependent on the team to be like a stream of income for them right like it should be fun money for them um the way mark cuban for anybody who's not aware um when he bought the the mavericks his his goal was to win a championship and he put a ton of money into the team to the point where he was actually losing money um each year because he was trying to bring in good players he was trying to market the game and he wasn't concerned about making money he was just concerned about winning and that's what i mean right like the owner should be concerned about winning but they shouldn't be penny pinching concerned about you know not putting a ton of money into the into the team or whatever because to me like if you're worried about lining your pocket with a sports team that you own it shows that you really don't care about the team. You just care about the money and you're using it as an investment opportunity, which it is. But as an owner, that shouldn't be your only concern when you're, you know, owning a, a, a sports team. So that's why I think everybody should be like Mark Cuban. Um, he's the example owner um, that I think everybody should follow, but they're not going to. So anyways.
0: Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think therein lies the difference between the NBA and MLB. And I think part of it too, is that the players have a lot more power in the NBA for a lot of reasons. And so in baseball, you have a lot more players on the team and they have a lot less power. A lot of them have, you know, their, their roles on the team don't allow them to have the, 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 and the, the amount, the pure amount of players just simply, there's just not, again, not that, that same, that same power structure where in the NBA, if look, you know, the, the league does pretty much what LeBron James says, or the league does what the top five to ten stars want, and either they do it or they face the consequences, they face the wrath of these superstar players. So I think that plays a big role, but you're right, Travis. Having owners like Mark Cuban would be better, better for everyone. But again, these guys. It's their money. It's their team. And if they want to make a profit, if they want to make more money, it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, we can't say this because we're not, we're not billionaires. We didn't get to that position, but there's a reason that they have so much money. And of course they're going to want more of it. That's just the way they are. That's they were so successful to get to that point. They're not going to stop there. You're not just going to sit back and and start losing money. Right. It, It just, it just doesn't work that way.
1: No, you're right. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that every owner should lose money off the team, but they shouldn't be concerned about turning a massive profit off of the baseball team, right? Because they all have their main jobs, right? This is like, you know, a side investment um, to an extent. So I don't know. It, it's different, but the the NBA is definitely a player's league and there's some different repercussions. But just the overall um, – uh, mindset that I think most owners should have is I want to win and if that means paying players more than they should be worth then that means playing them more than they should be worth right like an example of this I'll, I'll go back to Mark Cuban once again he paid I believe it was JJ Berea, like the veteran minimum 2.2 million dollar contract and then released them. and that was his way of thanking him for his I think he played with the team for like a decade or something and it was just his way of saying thank you for your time with the team I don't want you on the team anymore because you're not good enough but we'll give you the veteran minimum contract and release you so you get all the money as like a thank you right that's just like the good gesture kind of guy he is right and I think a lot of owners aren't like that at all right so
2: yeah, I I just want owners to spend money on their team and actually try to win. And I hate that there's so many owners now that spend like forty million dollars on a payroll when there's players now making forty million dollars a year. It's just it's just so stupid for that to happen. Like if if, if, if the league has gone to a point where you're paying players that much, it just needs to be like a salary floor for teams to spend. Like all these guys are so rich. If you're not gonna put like at least like a playable winning team on the field. Then it's like there's no other point of them owning. They should be like almost forced to sell. I know it's not possible, but I mean, it's just ridiculous. I know that maybe like, you know there can be one or two teams that are rebuilding. Not every team can be like even decent at once, but it just seems like there's so many teams that's not even trying. They're just purposely tanking and it's trying to get draft picks and it's waiting until like their analytics finally can find them like a good uh, good enough team to do that way.
0: Well, there lies another issue. A big difference between the M- NBA and MLB is that Major League Baseball is so regionalized. And in the NBA, the players are the main attraction. It doesn't even matter. I feel like sometimes it doesn't even matter what jersey they're wearing. As long as they go to some team and form a super team, uh, it, it could be in Cleveland, it could be in Minnesota, it could be in Milwaukee, it could be in LA, New York. It doesn't matter. Whereas in baseball, because of how much – these owners spend dependent on the market, but dependent on their revenue uh, and the fandom, then that'll, that'll determine how much they invest in the team, what types of players they bring in, the star power level of the players they bring in. And that, again, is probably the core issue here. How can the players get these owners who have these $40 million payrolls, like Mike just said, to spend appropriately, spend what they should be spending for their market size?
1: Uh, salary or not a salary minimum, but like, um, a, a a minimum cap or whatever you want to call it, right? So yeah, a salary minimum floor. Don't yeah, salary minimum or a team team salary minimum, whatever you want to call it, but don't impose a, a you know a salary cap, but impose a salary minimum, right? So make it like eighty million or something like that, right? So you don't have teams spending forty million a year on. 25 guys right because like you said there's now two teams i believe um who are depending on what happens with trevor bauer and the dodgers but there are now two teams as of right now that are paying um a player on their payroll 40 million a year so
0: and the other thing too um damn it! i was just thinking oh yeah so you can spend money at a reasonable level let's say 80 million and still be in a rebuild, still not be trying to contend, you can make smart investments in the market and then turn that money into prospects, get value out of it. Just look at what the Cubs have done this offseason. Are the Cubs going for it? Are the Cubs going to have a $160 million payroll? No, and maybe part of that is because they have a couple of contracts on the books still, but they invested money in Wade Miley when the Reds wouldn't. They went out and got Marcus Stroman, with the idea that maybe they can flip him or maybe he can at least stabilize their rotation and help teach some things to their younger pitchers. They went out and they signed Clint Frazier, Harold Ramirez. They signed Jan Gomes. Are the Cubs going to make the playoffs this year? No, probably not. But they're out there spending money, a decent amount of money. And that's what the rest of these teams are able to do if they really wanted to and just be smart with how they spend that money.
2: Yeah, totally
0: agree. So the next question is, I mean, I'm not going to go through every single question here. Some of them are pretty obvious, but some of them are relevant at that. Will there be a 2022 season? What do you think guys? How does this shake out? When does this lockout end Travis?
1: We talked about this a few episodes ago. There will be a 2022 season. Um, I mean, there there is a 99.9% chance that we will have a 2022 season. We just came off like two years ago, the owner's, lost their minds because there was a 60 game season and they were going to lose all sorts of profits. And I think you mentioned in that episode, the owners wanted to delay the season by a month so that they could start, you know, opening day having fans in the stands because they were so concerned about losing profits. The owners, I think the players to a certain extent are going to drive the owners or push the owners closer to the, you know, started the season That way they can get what they want from the owners because the players have the the advantage in this situation. I believe, Um, you know, without the players, you have no league and without, you know, a league, these guys don't make money. And we just talked about how some of these guys, you know, rely on their teams for a, you know, a large source of income. I know obviously maybe a team like Texas, you know, could pay for, you know, a lot of their facility fees, with their tv contract but that's not the same for you know 95 percent of the league so i think we will have a 2022 season for sure um and i wouldn't be shocked if the players get ex- not exactly what they want but if the cba is a favor towards the players compared to the managers or not the managers sorry the owners
2: um i'm confident there'll be a season i mean the longest lockout or Stoppage is like seven months. So at that rate, we'll still have a season. We'll be 162 games. That's what I'm not fully confident about. I mean, there's been like no indication of them really coming close to anything so far. So we, there's still a lot of time left in the winter. But I'm I know there'll be a season. I just don't know how long the season will be. That that's so the I other that, thing too.
1: Oh, oh sorry. sorry. Go ahead. uh That's the other thing too. Like. I, I think I mentioned in the previous podcast, we talked about this in a little bit more depth. Um, the, uh, what was I going to say? The The negotiations aren't going to be intense in December, right? Because spring training doesn't start till March. Once we get till Jan, end of January, February, then things will get, you know, much more intense. But as of right now, lockout just started. Nobody's really in a rush to, you know, come to an agreement um, each side's going to try and push each other the other way and try to get you know the most they can so given the fact that um, you know March is so far away or spring training is so far away I think um, the, the negotiations will pick up in a couple months
0: yeah I think they'll especially get heated after the holidays and there'll be an urgency to get it done and um, the last thing we wanted to you know, ask, will spring training start in time? I think you guys touched on it. Uh, I'm of the opinion that it will, that this will get settled right like a week before, and then we'll have a million players signing, and it'll be absolute chaos. It'll be really fun, and we'll definitely be here for it. Now, the final topic, the final thing we wanted to talk about, a little fun question. Will anyone beat Mo Rivera's save record? So – As of right now, Mariano Rivera holds the all-time saves record with 652 saves. Trevor Hoffman is second with 601, and no one has more than 500 after that. Lee Smith is third with 478. The current active leader is Craig Kimbrell with 372, second behind Meraldis Chapman, 306. Will anyone even pass Craig Kimbrell? Will anyone touch Mariano Rivera that's currently pitching or even pitching in the future? Will he ever get past?
2: Um, the, uh, the game is, like, just becoming, like, like slightly different where, like, the – I feel like those guys are, like, a different breed. Like, the, the late 90s, early 2000s kind of when the save was, like, super important. And now a lot of teams are using, like, starting to use relievers in, like, the most high-leverage moment. And that always doesn't come in the ninth inning. Um, like, while it's not the most unbreakable record currently in baseball, I, I think that that most record stays for a long time.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, 650 saves is ridiculous at any stage of the game. Right. Um, whether we were talking about, you know, the, the time period that Mike mentioned or now, I mean, it's even crazier now, um, like. I mean, Craig Kimbrell has, as you mentioned, Jeremy, 372 career saves. Now, Kimbrell is only 33. um, So he's going to be in the league for at least another three, four seasons, I would say. Um, And he's going to be an elite closer for all of that time. Um, In terms of do I think he will be able to amass close to 300 saves to beat Rivera in those three, four seasons? Probably not with the way that the game is changing. We have a lot more high scoring games and blowout games compared to what we used to have way back when, just with the power surge and everything like that, that we don't have time to get into. But um, just to kind of bring things in a a full circle and relate them back to the last pod, uh, Billy Wagner's on this list at number six. Do I think Kimbrell can catch him? Yeah, give him a season or two. And I think he'll be able to reach 422 career saves, which is what Wagner has. Um, I, I, do think there's a pretty legitimate chance that Kimbrel can become top three. I think so. As long as he stays healthy, he can definitely become top five. Um, cause I mean, Billy Wagner and John Franco are only separated by two saves. So, um, I, I definitely think he can become top five, Give him those three, four years. I think there's a legit chance that he could be top three, but anything past that, I think 600 is just. A ridiculous amount. Like, I mean, it's like 700 career home runs as of right now. That's like ridiculous. Right. But
0: yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I think that he gets to number three before he retires. He'll end up with somewhere a little bit over Smith, maybe 500 in total, but he's not touching Hoffman. He's definitely not touching Mo just with the game and how it's played currently. I mean, we saw last season, he got traded to the white Sox, and he closed some of the time, but other times he didn't, and that's not his fault. And, of course, he lost effectiveness to an extent when he when he went when he went to the White Sox, and um, who knows how he progresses over the next couple of years, but he'll certainly get those save opportunities, even if it's on a bad team, and we'll see what happens with the White Sox and what they do with him, and that'll be a, a big determinant of if he can rack up any more saves even this coming season because if he's still in the White Sox he's not getting, he's not getting more than 20 or 30 saves. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with Kimbrell, but beyond, beyond, behind him, there's no one that's really even close. Chapman and Melanson are probably on their last legs as closers or even in the league in general. And uh, yeah, I think Mo's record is going to stay unless the game changes significantly in the future, which is all, you know, it goes in cycles. It can, uh, I think his record is pretty safe.
1: For sure. And do I think anybody will catch Kimbrel unless he gets hurt and he misses a full season? I don't think Jansen's going to catch up to him because Jansen's at 350. I think you mentioned, so he's 27 away. Like I said, unless Kimbrell gets hurt, probably not. Um, but yeah, the team that he plays for definitely uh, is a huge factor. I mean, Kimbrell needs to go to a team where he's going to be the primary closer. He'll get more save opportunities on a good team, but I don't see a reason why if he went back to a team like the Cubs, um, he wouldn't get at least 40 saves um, in a season. And I think the reason uh, he lost his effectiveness at the end of last season with the Cubs is just it's not uh, pitching out of the bullpen the way he was wasn't, uh, you know, a situation that he was familiar with or comfortable or used to pitching in in the past. I don't know, 10 seasons, maybe. So it was definitely a change, and just the added pressure of he's playing for a you know World Series contender, probably you know rubbed him the wrong way and didn't you know exactly foster good um, results out of him. But if he goes to a team where he can resume being the full time closer, I have no reason to see why he couldn't become you know top three in all time
2: saves. I don't think he passes Lee Smith.
0: Totally possible. I, yeah, I, I, I mean.
2: I mean, you saw him kind of take like, a weird step back in twenty eighteen with the Red Sox, and I think in nineteen and twenty he was kind of he was pretty bad, mm-hmm. and then he he kind of rediscovered himself this year, but uh, held off towards the end. So it's kind of hit and miss. But to expect him to be like an elite uh, reliever, especially years later, um, I know he's a track record, but I don't know. Does he have like a hundred or so saves left in him? We'll see. I I, I don't think he passes Lee Smith.
0: I also. Um, I kind of miss Kenley Jansen because on this list the current the guys who are currently on teams are bolded and, and Jansen is currently a free agent so he's not he's not bolded but uh, he might be able to pass Kimbrel just because he's he had a really good season he, he's he's going to be the closer for whatever team he goes to conceivably so I mean we'll, we'll see what happens with that so what's jensen at Jansen?
2: like two like three something like high, like high 200s 300.
0: He's 350. Kimbrell is 372. But that, that's yeah. nowadays, that's a lot of saves. To, like, that's a season's worth right there, basically. He has to make up.
2: That's saying. Yeah. There's, there's a gap. I see all of them kind of slowing down and getting the 400 somewhere.
0: Yeah. Totally possible. So, with that, thanks for listening to this episode of the America's Pastime podcast. Hope you enjoyed. Make sure you like, subscribe, rate, review, follow follow us on Instagram at apt underscore pod underscore on Twitter at apt underscore pod and tune in next time.